I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. frustrating things about being an astronomer is that people often come up to you in this wonderfully excited way and ask about UFOs. Is there any evidence of flying saucers or alien abductions? And the thing that's kind of sad about that is that there's so much wonderful stuff that we actually know about besides, well, could there possibly be aliens abducting people? But the flip side of that is that it's a really exciting time because for the first time in history, scientists have a real chance to find actual alien life. There are certainly places like Mars that might have had life in the past, but today, honestly, it's not a very good place for life. Now, in contrast to that, there are worlds in our outer solar system that are wonderful places for life today. You know, there's bacteria on Earth that if you brought them out there might actually do quite fine. The places in our solar system that might have life today are very far away, millions of miles away in the outer solar system. So there isn't much hope of sending a human being out there to do the exploring. Instead, we're going to have to send what is kind of our best simulation of life here, robots. I grew up in a, in a small town in, in Vermont underneath a beautiful night sky and, and so had the stars above. This is Kevin Hand. At a young age, I was captivated by the idea of, is there life beyond Earth? Are we alone? These pretty fundamental questions. He's an astrobiologist. And that question has been at the heart of my, um, of my passion for, for all my life, and it, it's um, taken me to this curious moon of Jupiter called Europa. Hand is a deputy project scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I spend much of my time working on helping develop a mission concept for landing on the surface of Jupiter's moon Europa. That's right, he's working on a mission to actually land on Europa. It's one of several moons that orbit Jupiter, which is the largest planet in our solar system. So Europa is about the size of our moon, roughly 3,000 kilometers in diameter. But Europa isn't your typical barren space rock. It's got this ice shell. And Europa doesn't just have some ice, it's covered in it. And we're talking water ice. This is ice similar to what you would have in your freezer, except it's probably pretty salty and it's got some other stuff in it. Beneath the ice shell, we have good evidence indicating that there is a global liquid water ocean that's approximately 100 kilometers or 60 miles in depth. And so when you do the math and figure out how much water Europa has relative to the Earth, it turns out that Europa's ocean contains two to three times the volume of all the liquid water found in Earth's ocean. If we've learned anything about life on Earth, where there's water, you find the life, and there's a whole ton of water out at Europa. Now, scientists can be interested in some fairly obscure things. I mean, I, I love finding out how planets work on their interior, you know, the history of worlds over billions of years. But let's be clear, the reason we're so fascinated by Europa is life. That is the reason we want to go out there. We see a place that has the possibility today to have existing life. And as scientists, we all, oh my God, we've just got to find out. What fascinates me is the prospect of finding 
a second origin of life, a second tree of life. All life on Earth is connected by the same tree, uh, the, the DNA, RNA uh, tree of life. Uh, is there another tree of life out there? Is the origin of life easy or hard? Um, you know, for all of the diversity, all of the beautiful diversity of life on Earth, we all not only depend on liquid water and carbon, but we also run on DNA, RNA, proteins, ATP, etc. You know, biology 101, which you learn in the classroom. Is there a different way to get the business of life done? So in order to go to a place where we might find living life, where we can see whether or not it represents a second origin, a separate tree of life, um, we need to go to places that have lots of liquid water today and the other elements and energy that we think are important for life. And for me, all roads basically point to the outer solar system, to these ocean worlds uh, as prime targets to, to find living life. So the evidence indicates that Europa has all these ingredients for life. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But to answer this question, is there life on Europa? We have to go there. We're definitely going to Europa. Well, not ourselves exactly, but the next best thing, robots. We have to build incredibly complex machines that can do the exploring for us. Part of what's fun about being at JPL is you're, you're a scientist doing research, but you're also helping advance the uh, robotic exploration of our solar system. It's a long and detailed process, and much of what occurs here at JPL is that, um, that design study process. And missions do, in, in some cases, start on a napkin at a restaurant, uh, saying, well, okay, if we wanted to do this, it would look like this and this and that. And then, you know, the next day or the next week, um, you get a team of scientists and engineers together and say, okay, we've got these science questions. And, and this is typically what happens. The scientists, like myself, come in and say, I got a science question, and, and uh, you know, I want to find life elsewhere. Or I want to figure out uh, you know, what, what, what makes up a comet or, or why Venus uh, does what it does. And so you, know, you got all these crazy scientists coming in, and then the engineer's like, oh, my goodness, how do we figure out how to actually build something that could answer that question? In other words, engineers have to build space robots. We look at the future missions and we kind of trace back and say, what are the engineering needs that we need to go after and, and basically solve for that mission to be successful? This is Tom Swick, manager of the Space Technology Program at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Swick and his team have been working in parallel with Hans Science Team to make sure that the Europa mission actually gets to Europa. We're going to do the, the Clipper flyby mission, all right? So that's an orbiter, and, and this is on the books. Everything has to be done in stages. Before we can actually get down into the oceans of Europa, we have a lot to learn about Europa itself. So the point of the Europa Clipper is to survey the entire surface of this world and look for the best place to put a lander down. And it'll also just teach us a lot about what Europa is like. One of the things that might be happening is that water could be venting through some of the cracks. If that's true, then even the Europa Clipper orbiting around Europa might be able to give us some sense of what that water's like. And then we have the second mission, so to speak, which is the landing on Europa, the surface mission, which um, should go a couple years later. And the goal is to land on the surface. And we needed some technologies for that. 
So getting into the water, next next mission, okay? We're actively working on it because that is, uh, it's going to require some invention. We don't know how to do it. And so we organized it sort of like in an architecture that said, we're going to start from orbit. We have to get to the surface of Europa, probably kind of similar like we're doing the first landed mission. After that, we need to be on the surface, and now we have to find a way to go through the probably 10 kilometers of ice. And so that's a melt probe. Generally, it's a, it's a cryo probe that we, we call it. Um, and then once, once that probe hits the bottom of the ice, you're going into the water, and then you, that probe has to morph sort of transformer style, or a piece of the probe is going to come off and be uh, a, a, an underwater vehicle. And it will have then the cameras, it will have the science instruments that's going to, you know, uh, detect uh, whether or not there is some form of life in that water. So to restate, they plan to have a spacecraft land on Europa in a very carefully chosen location. Then a probe will have to melt through a few miles of ice and then change transformer style into an autonomous submarine. Then it gets to the really exciting stuff, searching for alien life going to be a self-driving probe because there's not going to be a joystick scientist on, on Earth going, yeah, go a meter, go a meter, go a meter. It's going to be self-driving through the ice. So, in fact, we're looking, you know, very seriously at what the self-driving, you know, Teslas and autonomous cars are out there on the roads and how they do it. And that's not even the hardest part. The biggest challenge you got is having enough power to to drive that probe through the ice and do it fast enough that you could stay alive, exist optimistically, maybe it's a couple years, uh, to go through that ice. If we could bring a little nuclear reactor, for example, and stick it on the surface and power down kilowatts of electricity to this probe, we'd fly through it in months. More power, uh, the better uh, you're gonna, you know, the faster you could do things, the more information you could bring back. That's a fact of life. When you think about exploring the oceans of Europa, you would think the main challenges would be things like, hey, how do we land a robot onto the ice that then melts through the ice and then turns into a submarine and all that? Well, those are the really fun technical challenges. But sometimes the most daunting ones are honestly not as sexy. Obviously, there's nowhere to plug something in. And when you're as far away from the sun as Jupiter is, the sun is only at about 4% the brightness that it is here. So using solar panels really isn't much of an option. You have to be very, very stingy with the power that you're using. Even sending data back, that takes a tremendous amount of energy. So there will most likely be data that the spacecraft is taking that we're not all that interested in, just usual housekeeping stuff. How can we make it triage the information, select the most interesting things to send us, and then use precious power to beam that back? Once we actually get a self-driving robot under the ice of Europa, it's wonderful to imagine what we might find down there. And hey, it could be something huge. I mean, there could be something like giant squid under the ice. Or more likely, when you look at similar environments at the bottom of the ocean on Earth, maybe it's something small, like tiny little shrimp or little tube worms or crabs. The most likely scenario is one that's a little bit less interesting, perhaps, but I'm still fascinated by the prospect of finding microbial life, life that's so small you really need a microscope to see it. 
But even microbial life would be incredibly profound, actually finding alien life. And when you think about the environment of Europa, you're under a shell of ice. It's dark down there. There's no sunlight. So what would something down there actually live off of anyway? When we're looking at these ocean worlds in the outer solar system, we're talking about ecosystems that are probably uh, founded on chemosynthesis. So photosynthesis, obviously you're using energy from, from the sun or your parent star to, to build life. Chemosynthesis is what microbes in hot springs in Yellowstone or hydrothermal vents at the bottom of our ocean, and that's what they're doing. They're using the chemistry of those environments to synthesize, metabolize, grow, repair, etc. Here on Earth, we have discovered whole communities of chemosynthetic life. And that means bacteria and other organisms that live in total isolation from the sun. They need no light whatsoever. All they need is the chemical reaction of minerals and hot salt water. That drives everything inside their biology. Once you get into the ocean of Europa, you're in conditions that we think are comparable to conditions at the depths of our own ocean. There may be things like hydrothermal vents on the seafloor uh, that are allowing um, enough compounds, enough interesting chemistry to come out uh, such that any ecosystem there could survive on chemosynthesis using all of that interesting chemistry. It's incredible to think that at this very moment, there may be little things swimming around under the ice of Europa. And if you take a pair of binoculars and go out into your backyard at night, you can see Jupiter and you can actually see Europa as one of the small points of light going around it. The thing that is so tantalizing, and it's beautiful but it's frustrating, is that none of this is easy. It takes time to design these missions. So it's going to be a while before we're really going to be able to put a submarine underneath the ice and see what's there. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a it's a daunting prospect. I was talking to some kids last night, and they were all curious about when I started uh, uh, studying Europa. And it's been 17 years now, uh, and uh, and I guess we're we're closer to to having a mission, uh, getting to the launch pad. But as exciting as this business is, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, you've you've got to be obsessed with this stuff because it does take a long time to get things to the launch pad and out there. Um, but we're pursuing such, such grand and exciting questions that, uh, that it makes it all worth it. Swick, the engineer, says in the best case scenario, his self-driving swimming space robot will start melting through Europa's ice in, well, probably between one and two decades. This kind of project literally needs the five to ten years of sustained effort to get to the point where then, you know, you unleash the engineering teams to go build it, to fly it. And so even if you're giving me infinite money, um, you know, uh, you can't, it still takes nine months to, to, to make a baby. You can't do it faster because there's just a, a natural process of, um, uh, you know, thinking, building, designing, testing, iterating uh, on these really hard tech pieces that have to come together. You know, it's the Apollo project. You couldn't have uh, gone to the moon in 1966. Okay, it took you out to 1969 to get everything lined up, mistakes along the way, tragedy along the way, to actually make it happen. And, and this, is, this is very similar to that. It's daunting, but Han says making all this a reality is within reach. There's no magic wand, per se, that's needed to, uh, to get a mission like that done. The, the technologies are conceivable, and by magic wand, I mean, you know, if we think about 
wanting to travel to a distant galaxy, you've got to invoke warp speed and, and, and all these things. And, and, and so that technology doesn't yet exist. The technology to get through the ice and into the ocean of Europa exists in very cumbersome forms that are not appropriate for getting to the launch pad. But there's nothing, you don't need to invoke any magical physics to actually figure out how to, how to get through the ice and in the ocean. When you think about wonderful moments in history, it's a little bit sad, but there are these times when we can look out and see something, but we can't quite yet get there. You can stand on top of a mountain range and look across an ocean and see a suggestion that there's land over there, but you haven't built a boat yet. You can stand on the surface of the earth and look up at the moon and think, wow, maybe someday people will walk on the moon, but there's no way to get there yet. And we can stand on earth and look out at Europa. And right now, there's no way for us to get there any faster. We have to let things grow and develop. We have to follow our technology, send our robotic emissaries first. I'll be a little bold and say, I, I think there's a decent chance that if life is out there in a significant abundance, um, we will find it within the next 20, 20 years. Um, and by that, I mean life in our own backyard in the solar system, be it on Mars or the ocean worlds, or some signature of life on an exoplanet. And I'll even throw out there the possibility that we might get that, that extraterrestrial signal someday uh, in the not-too-distant future. We've just got to keep searching. If you're enjoying Orbital Path, then check out the Everyday Einstein podcast produced by our friends at Quick and Dirty Tips. Join astrophysicist Dr. Sabrina Steerwalt as she explores the science behind everyday life and mysteries. How old is the universe? Why do smells trigger memories? Just how dangerous, exactly, is space junk? The largest threat to astronauts and working satellites is actually the stuff that's too small to track. Even something as small as a fleck of paint can cause major damage when traveling at speeds of 17,000 miles per hour. Subscribe and listen to Everyday Einstein on iTunes, Stitcher, or quickanddirtytips.com. This mission to the stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. If you like this episode and want to hear more, check us out at orbital.prx.org or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.